We'd like to thank the congregation this morning for your wonderful presence. We are blessed to have everyone in this assembly that has arrived. I realize and recognize clearly the Bible is very clear. Except the Lord God Almighty build the house, they labor in vain that build it. The Bible also says the watchman may awake, but unless the Lord God keeps the city, no one will be safe. So I clearly recognize that except God help us in this Bible study, all is hopeless. Let us pray. God, our Father, we humbly thank you today. Profoundly thank you that in this awesome time that we're living in, that we may have a covenant-keeping God who hears the prayers of his people. And blessed Father, we come to you today. Great Jehovah, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, be mindful of your covenant people today, for we live in a nation that has broken covenant, that has repudiated and scorned your holy laws, reviled your commandments. A nation, Lord God, of gross wickedness, moral depravity, a nation, Lord my God in heaven, that have worshipped, followed, loved, and served other gods beside Thee. Father, we are a nation that is truly become grossly wicked. We humbly ask now as a covenant body, a part of the remnant church of God across this nation, that we would find some favor, clemency, and mercy in your, in your sight. Please help us, Father, amid a nation whose borders are open to the whole world. Father in heaven, it is difficult to know what it means to live in a nation that's being invaded by the world. Lord God, to live in a nation that has rejected Thee, scorned Your laws, and served and followed, worshipped and loved other gods. Please, Father in heaven, be merciful to us and grant us clemency and mercy amid the wickedness of our generation. And favor your remnant church across this land and here in this assembly with favor. And Father, as this drought scorches so much of the American breadbasket, Lord God, we plead now that you would be merciful and find clemency and grace to send us rain. And all of this we pray in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ as we ask you now to favorably guide us in this lesson, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank every one of you today for bringing your Bibles into the house of God. We are really blessed today to be joined by quite a large congregation that are not here, but they're scattered all over the country, and they tune in to rumble. So everybody that is on rumble, wherever you are, I greet you all as I greet everyone here. So may God bless every one of you and our Love and Christian fellowship is extended 
to each and every home where this congregation will be sending out our little worship service. Today we are moving into the third lesson of the American Miracle. And as we move into this lesson, I need to explain a little bit of why we are talking about the American Miracle. I believe that there are many, many good reasons to be talking about the subject matter we are involved in. This will be our third, our third uh, lesson. <clears throat> we live in a country where the history of our nation has been essentially either sanitized and removed from the history books, or is, it is in the process of being removed. And there's a whole new historical novel that's being crafted by those who hate this land. And I have mentioned this. I've mentioned the 1619 project, which is now becoming a featured part of American history taught in the public high schools of this country and in lower grades as well. That America was born on the back of slavery. That slaves built this country. That's the 1619 Project. That the American War of Independence was waged to defend white man's interest in slavery. Now all of this, all of this manufactured, fabricated, historical lie that's being propagated is what the younger generation of Americans are going to grow up believing. They're not going to know about their Anglo-Saxon history. Now, if we're going to build a parallel culture among our children, if our young people are going to grow up, our children, and our young people, and build a parallel culture, they need to be armed with the true knowledge of their own history. If we don't teach them in our homes, in our educational efforts, and from this pulpit, where else are they going to get it? We dare not leave our young people to have their minds infected contaminated with this awful, terrible information that's being funneled into the American world now, the culture of this country. So if there's no other reason, then, then see, if we're going to build a parallel culture, we have to be an educated people. We have to know why we need a, a parallel culture. We have to be properly schooled and our children desperately, desperately need to know, and they deserve to know, the, the miracles of God that are associated with the building of this country. That's part of who we are. Yes, I know we're losing most of it. But our children need to know what this country was gifted with. What we were blessed with in our beginning because it had, a, in many ways, a very glorious beginning. So today I encourage you to open your Bibles to the 48th chapter of the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter number 48, Jacob is getting ready to die. He has cataracts. He is essentially blind. He calls his son Joseph, the birthright son, because he wants to give Joseph a double blessing. And he's going to give him that double blessing by blessing his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The name Manasseh means forgetfulness. America was built in the early stages of our country with the children from Manasseh. And the British 
commonwealth of nations in its flourishing day of greatness was peopled by Ephraim. So when Joseph brought his two sons to his aged, blind father, Jacob was most careful to cross his hands because the boys were standing in the reverse order in which he wanted to bless them. So he crossed his hands to put his right hand on the younger son Ephraim because he's going to be given the birthright of the double portion. And it will be shared by the other brother Manasseh, but to a lesser extent. Now, when this birthright is given, there may be many reasons why all of us growing up in our own particular racial origins have less than deep appreciation for the British or for the Americans. Not everyone here today was born in America. And not everyone here today was born in the British Isles. But all of us share a commonality of racial heritage among the Anglo-Saxon Celtic family. And if you all took a DNA test, there's a very likely, very likely probability that you would show up with Scottish, some Irish, some English, some German, some Swiss, some Scandinavian, Swedish, Norwegian, Danish, and I could go on and on. Because all of those nations are from the family of Jacob's sons. Now how does, a, how does God sort out all that DNA? You know that he's going to do it because at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, he's going to seal 12,000 from every tribe. How's he going to find the pure DNA in every tribe to do that? Because he's God. Nothing is impossible with God. Now, the bottom line, church, we don't derive our salvation by the color of our skin. Underline that. We're not saved by who we are. We're saved by who has purchased us, redeemed us by his blood. Our salvation is in Christ not the arm of flesh. So we're never going to build salvation on race. But here's the truth that will cause many theologians to choke and not be able to swallow. Election is by race. Salvation is by grace. Everyone chosen to a state of salvation is chosen on the basis of God's calling and election of a people. The means by which they are saved is through the grace that comes from Christ alone. So if anyone ever tells you that the Church of Israel is a congregation that builds salvation on race, you tell them that is clearly wrong. We're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So we're not saved by race. When Jacob laid his hands, 
his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. I'm going to read what he said out of one verse. Look down at verse 16. <coughs> Genesis 48, 16, if you will, please. And let's read that verse out loud. I'm at Genesis 48, verse 16, boys and girls. The angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. That's plural. And let my name be named on them. This is an adoption whereby Joseph's two sons are being added into the, into the 12 tribes. Let my name be named on them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them, them is incorpor incorporating both Ephraim and Manasseh. Let Manasseh and Ephraim grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, if you want to have some interesting conversation, take Genesis 48 to a minister and ask them what, they, what this all means. This is a prophetic future that God is outlining for His children through Ephraim and Manasseh. Now let's go to verse 19. When the father refused to put his right hand on Manasseh, and rather he put it on the second-born Ephraim, when Joseph tried to correct his father, here's the aged Jacob, blind, but he said, I know it, my son, speaking to Joseph, I know it. He also, meaning Manasseh, the firstborn, shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Now, if you dig into the Hebrew, that word great means more than it does in the English language. It's more than just great. It means really significantly better. <coughs> so let's read on. He also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall be a multitude of nations. Manasseh was to become singularly the great exceptional nation of history. Ephraim was to become a whole commonwealth, company of nations. So, when we look at the Bible, church, <coughs> excuse me, there's a national message and there's a personal message. The national message is that God has a plan for the nations. The nations descending from Jacob. So God has a plan, we'll call it the national plan of the Bible, but then he has a plan for every individual that is part of that national, national picture. So when we as Christians open our Bibles, we have to know that we have a personal interest in the gospel, and then we have a national interest in the gospel. Every one of us had a homeland. Every one of you were born into some native land. And that native land had been claimed and conquered. It had been explored, civilized, and settled by God's children through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we all have a vested interest in the idea of a national picture of nations in the Bible descending from Abraham. But we also have a personal interest. When Jesus walked the earth, he, he ordinarily talked to individuals. 
He told Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, anothen, firstborn from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He further said to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye be born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now think of that. Jesus said you can't see the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born from above. So what does that mean? Jesus explains it in John's Gospel, chapter 3. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again, anothen, Greek, firstborn from above. He went on to say, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. When we become converted, we are transformed from a Jacobite into an Israelite. When we are born into the world, we're just one of Abraham's descendants. But when we are delivered from our sin, saved by the blood of Christ, then we become like Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Jacob was the first Israelite. His name was changed to Israel, meaning prince ruling with God, people ruling with God, people wrestling with God. Jacob wrestled with an angel. Now the angel may have been a pre-existent Jesus. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob would not turn loose of the angel till he received a blessing. Jacob was known for his tenacity. He would not give up. When he was in the womb, ready to be born, what did he do? To try to come down the birth canal first, what did Jacob do? He grabbed a hold of the heel of his brother Esau and began to pull him back. Where do I read that? I read that in a book called the Bible. It's in the book of Genesis and the book of Hosea. So Jacob wrestled with God. And Israel has wrestled with God throughout its history. As the people of Jacob, church, we should never give up. We should be determined to stand in the rugged determination of Jacob and say to our Father in heaven, Give me this land. Father in heaven, Give us a slice of America in the day of Jacob's trouble. We need to contend with God a little bit. We need to reason with God. That's what Jacob did. Read Genesis 32. Jacob reasoned with God. He, he wouldn't turn loose of that angel. And do you know the end result of that was Jacob sustained a hip injury. Read about it. Jacob sustained a hip injury, and that's why Israelites are vulnerable in the hip. Watch out when you fall. That's where your weakness is. It's in that hip. How many have had trouble with your hip? By a raise of your hand, big and high. Quite a few. So the bottom line here, church, is that if you haven't wrestled with God, think about it. Think about what it means to wrestle with God.
Can I tell you the name of a woman who wrestled with God? Her name was Hannah. <coughs> what did Hannah wrestle God about? A child. And she wouldn't give up till she got a child. She had to make some promises to God, but so did Jacob. So all of us need to get so serious with God that we're ready to wrestle. Now, Vernon County is a, is a pretty good-sized county church. It's got 20 townships. I believe that every township, unless I'm incorrect, has 36 sections of land. You realize how large this county is? This county is as large as... I think I can name a couple little states that it will approach being the size of those states. It's, it's really large. Vernon County, where does it end to the west? Kansas. And it goes all the way to the north to this Osage River that winds around us. We're right at the edge of this county. But how far south do we go? All the way into Barton, to where Barton County meets us. That's way south of here. So this is our little sliver of the great land that God gave Manasseh. A land of 3,777,000 plus square miles. And Vernon County is a little tiny postage stamp in that huge, vast land. America is the third largest land mass nation in the world, exceeded only by Canada and I believe Russia. So the bottom line, church, is that we're... We're called to take dominion. This is, uh, this is God's call to us. And God may be saying, what are you going to do with the land I've given you? Go in and possess that land. What are you doing with the land? Are you taking care of the land that I'm giving you? Is it productive? Are you building houses? Are you taking dominion of the land that I'm going to make available to you? I think those are appropriate questions because we live in a time, church, when we have to build our own independent little culture. It, we'll call it a subculture. We cannot trust the culture out here in America. It's going in a direction we don't want to be a part of. Come ye out and be separate is the message of the Bible. That you be not partakers of her sins and receive not of her plagues. We're not saying that we're one minutia better than anyone else. We just don't want to fraternize with the race-mixing, homosexual, abortion-loving transgender, sicko population of this country. We just don't want to do it. Now, if there are those who are comfortable with that culture, God bless them. I mean, no, God is not going to bless them. That was an improper statement. May God have mercy on them. But as for us, we ought to be with Joshua and say, as for us, we are going to serve the Lord God. So that's what we need to do. So I'm not trying to blow smoke talking about the American miracle here today. Because I, I personally believe that there's going to be miracles in all of our individual lives. So I ask the question, how many believe that you have experienced a miracle in your own life? How many, how many hands can be raised? 
I want you to look around and see the testimonies. Who can raise your hand so everybody can see it? You're a, you're a person who's experienced a miracle. How many of you believe that God can still make miracles happen? Do you know that there's nothing impossible with God? If, if we are determined to wrestle with God, God, if, we're, if we have the same tenacity of Jacob, and we are willing to go all the way with Jacob and, as he did and say, God, I'm not going to turn loose of you until you bless me. I will not turn you loose, Jacob said, until I receive my blessing. We're the children of that man. So I want to know where the tenacity is here. Where is our tenacity? How do you define that word? It's, what's some synonyms for tenacity? Determination? Perseverance. Good lesson there, Ezekiel. Ezekiel knows what perseverance is. He taught on it Wednesday night. Perseverance. Did I say that right, Ezekiel? I've got to make sure that I pronounce that right. So that's why we're looking at the American miracle, because I believe we're going to see some miracles. I honestly am living and believing that we're going to see some miracles happen. When Israel would run out of water, did God perform a miracle for them? When they ran out of food, did God supply manna? How often did their shoes wear out? How many times did they have to go shopping for new dresses and, and clothes? Well, I don't know what kind of dresses they wore. I know they wore something. But I know this, their clothes didn't wear out. So they must have learned how to be content. Can you imagine girls being content with the same wardrobe for 40 years? Can you imagine girls wearing the same shoe style for 40 years? That's tenacity. Well, we're, we've got to move along or we're never going to get lesson three done. So what we're going to do here... I'm only giving little insets into American history. Little insets. Now, my prayer would be that our children are getting information to fill in all the blanks. But I want to start out today by sharing some information beginning in the year 1750. Last, our lesson number two, we started in the 1600s. So today we're going to go into the 1700s. In 17, as we moved into the uh, War of Independence, when that war started, April 19, 1775, America had been a country 160 years. That's three 40-year generations, or it is eight 20-year generations. By that time, this nation had been solidified, anchored, and built on a foundation so, so strong that that culture had built an immunity to the virus of race-mixing, the virus of homosexuality, sodomy, abortion, and all of that immorality, that culture vomited out all those viruses. They were unacceptable to the nation that had arrived through three successive 40-year periods in history by the time of the War of Independence. America going into the War of Independence was a white, Protestant, Christian nation 
of European people arriving from all different corners of Europe, but all sharing a belief in the same God. They all arrived here with Bibles that regardless of what language they were printed in, were from the correct line of Bibles. The English arrived with the Geneva Bible and they soon traded it out for the King James Bible. The Germans arrived with Martin Luther's translation, which was a first cousin to the King James Bible. So they all read from their different Bibles, but they read about the same God, the same people, moving in the same direction. One culture, kind of like that statement in Ephesians 4, one God, one faith, one baptism. We can add to that one race, one faith. One language. Well, that's the culture we're trying to build here among our young people. We're trying to build a worldview among the children and youth, a worldview that will hold them faithful and strong, steadfast and steady as the world around them grows more and more wicked. Our young children and young people and young adults cannot, for, they cannot simply fraternize with the culture out here and survive. It's, it's not going to happen. They're going to survive because they're going to build their own culture. We'll call it a parallel culture. If we had been born in the 1700s, we wouldn't be worried about a subculture because the whole national culture was beautiful. I didn't say it was perfect, but it was beautiful. So in the 1700s, shift gears now, and at that season in history, people, what was happening in America is that three European countries were vying for the country called America. You had the British, the French, and the Spanish, and each one of them were planting their flags in this land. And every one of them were determined that America was going to be theirs. Now, you know that it didn't turn out that way. The French came looking for fur. They built fur trading posts all over this country, east and then west of the Mississippi River. So the French were building their fur trading posts everywhere building their fur trading post. And they were doing it rapidly. In 1787, 1787, right over here on the bluff, the French built Fort Carondelet. And you can even look it up in the world book, or you can look it up on the internet which I have a copy of here. Part of this is factual. Part of it is not. I'll read you the part that's factual. Fort Carondelet was built 1787 by a French trader, Pierre Chateau. As a trading post on the high ground known as Halley's Bluff on the south bank of the Osage River in Vernon County. Later, the post which had been named Fort Carondelet. It was named for Baron de Carondelet, the Spanish governor of Louisiana. The fort has long since disappeared, but this was the French claim that they were making to the west side of the bank of the Mississippi River. 
Now keep in mind that the early Americans did have, they had no idea how big this country was. They didn't know how big this country was. They didn't even know really too much about the land between the Appalachians and the Mississippi, much less the vast territory beyond the Mississippi. So the French were busy building forts. They didn't bring a lot of people here. They just brought enough people to build forts and catch beaver and send loads, loads, boatloads of beaver pelts back to Europe. The Spanish went south. Florida became part of Spain. All the way up into Louisiana, that became part of Spain. New Orleans, Spanish village. California, Spain claimed a lot of America. But the French... The French were really laying claim. They were laying claim to all the land west of the Appalachians to the Mississippi. Now the problem was, so were the English. So in the 1700s, middle 1700s, America's like a tinderbox ready to go up in flames between the French and the English, later the Spanish. England and France were much more powerful than the Spanish. So what happened, beloved, was that, remember America in the middle 1700s were part of the British crown. There is no America in 1750. We are part of Great Britain. All the people living in America in 1750 were subject to the King of England. We didn't have an American independent nation. We're getting ready to have one. So what happened was the French arrived in the 1750s to push the English out of the territory west of the Appalachians. They told the English, you don't go beyond the Appalachian Mountains. That's the, that's the end of your British claim. And the French demanded all the land through the Ohio Valley. Now you people with good geographical minds know that the Ohio River meets the Allegheny and the Monongahela River in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that Ohio River drains that whole basin of land, huge, vast region of land, and empties it into the Mississippi River. The French wanted every part of the Ohio Valley. And they built a whole string of forts to hold their claim. Now the English had brought people here. They were having babies, building homes. They didn't come looking for fur. They didn't come looking for gold. They came looking to plant gardens and build houses. The English had a population of about 3 million people, less, a little less than that in, in 1750. The French had less than 100,000 people here, and most of them lived in Canada. Canada. The Spanish didn't bring any women or children. They brought a lot of Jesuit priests, set up missions and convert the Indians. But the English came to build a civilization. So who did God bless? What did God tell Adam and Eve to do? Go out and take dominion of the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue, and take dominion. God didn't say look for gold. God didn't say go trap beavers. So who do you think God's going to bless? Going to bless 
the people that followed the dominion call. So here come the French with an army, and they plant their, their garrisons all along in a string of forts all through the Ohio Valley. And one of those forts is called Duquesne. And the French had a fortified garrison there, as they did in every one of the forts. The English had almost none. They're vulnerable. They have been building homes and planting gardens. They don't have a real standing army. The British colonies are part of that British Empire, but they're 3,000 miles from the motherland. King George was 3,000 miles away from his subjects. And when the king's that far away, the subjects don't get too fond of their king. They get used to living without a king. Right? So the English are going to have to fight their way. Now they're going to have to lay down their hose. Now they're going to have to lay down their tools and go fight. They're going to have to fight to hold on. If they want to go beyond the Appalachian Mountains, they're going to have to earn it. And that's what we all have to know, church, that God doesn't give us anything on a silver platter. We have to go and find it and earn it. Isn't that right? God doesn't just give you. He expects you to wrestle, struggle a little bit. So don't give up. God always rewards you when you struggle. In, 17, in the 1750s, the French have decided it's time that the English know that they're not going to surrender that vast land west of the Appalachian Mountains. How I'd love to have a map to show what I'm talking about. So they send garrisons of soldiers from France to hold down those forts. So the colonies, they have no standing army. I'll call the colonies British because they're still British. They had no army in America. They had just a little colonial militia. So they organized the best they can. The, the farmers, the, the merchants, everybody that could fire a rifle that was able-bodied became part of a colonial, colonial militia. So in 1755, the British send a detachment of their British soldiers over here to join the colonial British and go out and tangle with the French. So they left the east side of the Appalachians under a general by the name of Edward Braddock, a British general. And they had about 26 or 27 lieutenants, captains under him. They were the redcoats. They were, all of those British soldiers were dressed in bright scarlet uniforms. Good targets. Oh, what beautiful targets they were. So Braddock, with an army of about 1,500 soldiers, moves his army across the Appalachian Mountains. No little undertaking. Part of the men had scurvy. They suffered from poor rations. They didn't have a lot of, of good shoes, uh, shoes to wear. So they, their footwear was very meager. But they're arriving to fight the French. As they come close to what we now call Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on the banks of the Allegheny and the Monongahela ri River, that's, a, that's an Indian name, Monongahela River. They are nearing 
a place. They're looking, they're on their way to Fort Duquesne. They're going to take the French fort of Fort Duquesne. Now there's going to be an explosion because the French are not about to give that up. But the French are not going to stay in that fort. They're going to send a militia force out to meet the British. So they do this. They go out to meet the British with General Edwin Braddock leading the British. They're going through now virgin timber, brush, and as they approach the, convert, the, the confluence of these rivers, the Allegheny and the Monongahela, about eight miles from the actual fort, the British are nonchalantly making their way through the trees and the brush. Suddenly, they are ambushed by the French. The French have an army of 600 Indians who they have armed, and those Indians know how to fight in the brush, in the trees. The British have never fought wars in trees and brush. The French and the Indians are used to fighting guerrilla style. The colonials are too, but there's only a few of them. Most of the army under Braddock is imported from Great Britain, and they've never fought that kind of a war. In the battle that ensued, it was a, it was a frightful battle. In this thick undergrowth near the river, in a deep wooded ravine, the French were slaughtering the British. Out of a band of 1,500 British soldiers, over 900 were either killed or wounded by the French and the Indians. Now, the, in, the British were accompanied by a little band of Iroquois because they didn't make friends that much with the Indians and entice them to fight with them. <clears throat> so the British were mostly without Indian help. But the French lived among the Indians. They really knew the Indian tribes. They, were, they had most of the big chieftains of the tribes with them in that battle. So the French and the Indians were really, really ready in every sense of the word. And so what happened then on that day was that the British were slaughtered. Now, there were two colonial Americans that were part of that British army that we, we know and count dearly. One of the wagon trains that was driven for General Braddock, Braddock was Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone was 21 years old, and he was driving a wagon loaded with ammunition and provisions. He did not get killed in that war, but he sure, he sure was fighting hard. And the other one was Lieutenant Colonel George Washington, who had been fighting the French off and on for several years, from the time he was about 16 or 17 years old. So by age 22, he had migrated up to a lieutenant colonel at age 22. So he was the only colonial officer in Braddock's British Army. And during this battle, Braddock assigned Washington who understood guerrilla warfare, because George Washington knew how to fight in the brush. He grew up doing that. So Washington had a horse, and Braddock gave him his orders to go up and down the brush and tell the men how to fight, how to organize. So George Washington's madly running to and from one post to another post in the woods and ravine and 
heavily wooded region. And then poor General Braddock was shot. He was mortally wounded, but still barely alive. Now he finally died, and George Washington helped carry his body to a little safe place where they continued the battle. He later returned and buried General Braddock. And George Washington presided at his burial. Now, one of the interesting things about that battle, when Braddock, General Braddock died, he un, untied his battle sash and gave that to George Washington. George Washington wore that battle sash all the way through the War of Independence, later to be fought. Uh, George Washington's only 22 at that time. He will be 42 when he fights the War of Independence, but he still has this battle sash, which he coveted because it came from a general who died fighting for the colonial cause. In this battle, 26 British lieutenant and captains were killed. The chaplain was killed. There was no officer left alive so far as the record shows except George Washington. Now the remarkable thing is that George Washington was not wounded. He was not afflicted in this horrendous condition. Now, because of that, now the, the French won that decisive battle. And it let the British know that if you're going to take the territory between the Appalachians and the Mississippi River, you're going to have to fight with all, your, with all your might. It's called wrestling with God. See, Americans today, they need to, we need to know that this country just didn't come handed on a platter. We had to fight for this country. Right where we're sitting right now, the flag of France and Spain have claimed this country right here. It's only by the grace of God that America ended up owning what is now called the Louisiana Purchase. The greatest real estate in the history of the world was when Thomas Jefferson managed to buy the Louisiana Purchase from what country? France. Paid three cents an acre for it. But no one knew how big it was. Was it as big as Half as big as Missouri, who knew? It turned out to have about 14 or 15 states in it. It's the largest real estate deal in history. The greatest bargain in the history of the world. The land where we're sitting sold for three cents an acre. The wealthiest, most fertile land in Iowa sold for three cents an acre. So we paid for it. Now, in the battle that we just mentioned, here's the miracle. O only God knew that there was a revolutionary war getting ready to be fought. God knew that. The colonials didn't. George Washington didn't. Because the idea of independence was not on their mind at that point. They were part of the British Empire, and so far as they knew, that, that would always be. But on that, in that battle, because George Washington survived that battle, the French believed that he had some kind of special dispensation from God, that he was un- incapable of being killed by a bullet. Now you're welcome to research this on your own. 
So I'm going to read you in closing a statement from George Washington's own testimony to his brother John Augusta Washington one year after the battle of the wilderness along the Allegheny Monongahela River in that battle. And here's what George Washington was telling his brother, and I'm going to quote directly from George Washington's own historical statement. Most all of the survivors of that British detachment believed that George Washington had been supernaturally kept alive. They did not know how he survived. So all kinds of rumors developed as to how George Washington came out of that battle unscathed. Because he's right in the heart of it through the entire process. On a horse, always a visible a target. So he's talking to his brother Augusta, John Augusta Washington, on July 18, 1755, about a year after the battle. And he wrote this in his conversation. He said, As I heard since my arrival at this place, Fort Cumberland, a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech, I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first and of assuring you that I have not as yet composed the latter. Now, the rumor was that Washington had been killed. The rumor was that that he was not alive, that he had been actually killed. Remember, no internet, no television, no radio. Minimal ways to communicate. Quote George Washington, by the all-powerful dispensation of divine providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat, two horses shot underneath me, from underneath me, and yet I escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Now, my question to this congregation is this. Was God preparing a Joshua to fight the British in the American War of Independence? God was preparing a Joshua. Now that ought to tell us something, church, that God will never leave his remnant leaderless. God is going to provide. Our goal is to do what God has told us to do and leave the rest to God. How many of you know that God can raise up a leader so quick it would make us? It can happen quickly. One of the French that fought against the British in this war later wrote this. Here's what he wrote. And I thought this was really, really clever. When this person that was in this war with Washington wrote his testimony about the war, he actually said that he had fired 17 fair shots at Washington. Seventeen times he fired his rifle and could not kill George Washington. Now, he, that's one of the reasons that the story spread that he was supernaturally saved. The coat that he wore had these bullet holes right where they'd penetrate around his heart.
Now, I don't think George Washington is some kind of a supernatural angel or anything of that nature. But I think he was a man raised up by God to lead this country in its darkest time. And when you, when you look at how Washington mobilized a little colonial ragtag army to fight the supreme army and navy power of the world in 1775, and George Washington led his troops to that victorious end, that was a miracle. America was born, baptized, and bathed in miracles. And the remnant church of God is going to be bathed and baptized in miracles as they welcome the kingdom of God into the earth. Shall we stand?